It sounds good. I'm Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. So please, please turn open to there. Mark chapter 5. We're going to start it out uh, as we continue through this series. I, I, I got some, uh, uh, some feedback. You're apparently a bit bored with the parables and the storms. So we've jumped into an action-filled one this morning. Mark could prophetically tell we were going to get, get a bit bored, us Gentiles. So he jumped into some action this morning. There's going to be a demon a bunch of suicidal uh, pigs, there's even naked guy. So I hope you are switched on, ready to be edified and uh, blessed as we read what uh, God's Word has for us. One last thing before we start the sermon is that out on the bookshelf, we have uh, a bunch of books you, uh, which are always on sale. They're sort of curated by the elders, so uh, Vic and I are checking what's good, and we're putting them out there, hoping that you would buy them and be edified. But through the month, April and May, there's going to be a whole swath of sales. Um, starting today, uh, they're all half price. So if you want to go and get some today, they're going to be, today and this evening, they're going to be completely half price, completely half price. That's a sales pitch. Absolutely free of half of the price. The rest you pay. Uh, and if you want to grab those, you're going to, I'll probably be busy. You can, Vic will be too. You can grab James, who's waving up the back. He's our trusty deacon. Or Isaac here, who is going to be doing a lot of the book sale uh, department. What you need to do is give them the cash, and they need to get your name, the book you got, and the amount you paid for it. That's all they need to get. No other details, no sign-up fees, no nothing. So just let those guys know that so that we can put that in our system, and then the book's yours. Free to go at half price. Uh, and watch, uh, keep your eyes open, because we'll get some more books there in the coming months. Oh, here's my promise. All the money in the next two months, next month and a half through the end of May that is spent on those books are going to go directly to our missions account. That's why we need to keep really close track of what money is being paid. It's all going to go to our missions account, which is uh, going to be supporting uh, Blake and Silpy in South Asia. Uh, and uh, going every dollar that goes in will be going straight back over um, to Blake and Silpy, their family. They don't have a lot of, they have zero support coming from the people they're ministering to. And we are blessed to be those who sacrificially give to support them. So please think about what you might buy. If you don't want a book, buy one for somebody else so you can give money to missions. Uh, anyway, but we're in Mark chapter 5, so please um, uh, uh, direct your attention there. We're going to see, uh, just in the first couple of phrases, that this is picking up straight off of uh, what should be last week's sermon, but it was about five weeks ago now because of uh, I, I had some time off with the new baby, then we had Easter, and some standalone sermons. So it starts out, they came to the other side of the sea. And so we remember that this is coming just off the back of the, of the Jesus calming the storm story when they were going over um, the Sea of, of Galilee. Uh, but for sort of a broader context, because this is, this is a long series that we're in, and so going straight back to the beginning of the book of Mark, we have Jesus uh, exploding onto the scene in the book of Mark. We don't get the birth story. We don't get the background. It's just John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus, then Jesus arriving, proclaiming his kingdom. And he started out preaching, and then he proved his authority by which he claims a new kingdom is coming. And so he healed, and he cast out demons, and he taught from the word of God with authority that no one had ever heard before. And that authority sparked in somebody the, the intolerance of a demon that was apparently happy to sit there through all the other sermons, through all the other explanations of scripture, but it could not tolerate Jesus preaching because he got to the point of the Old Testament which was himself. And so here this demon uh, uh, sparked up, Jesus cast it out, and since then Jesus has been getting quite a reputation. People are currently trying to plan how to murder him. Uh, they're, they're throwing all sorts of accusations around, like he's possessed with a demon himself, he's sort of a puppet of Satan, 
And he argued against that logically, but today we're going to see him prove that decisively through his work. We saw his words and logically why that can't be the case. Now we're going to see his words powerfully, sorry, his work powerfully displaying that he is not with Satan, he is against him. We've seen him tell some parables because remember, the point is that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the good news of the kingdom is that the king has arrived to pay for sin, establish righteousness, bring forgiveness, and create a new covenant people of God. That's the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And and so Jesus is proclaiming that and explaining what it's going to be like. He said in the parables, it's going to be like seed thrown on on the soil, and some people will take it, and other people will reject it, and it's going to be like a mustard seed, which starts out really small, and grows really slowly, but I promise you, it will take over this world and outshadow and outgrow everything else. Every other ideology, religion, and nation will be under the shadow of Christianity in the completion of the kingdom. This is Jesus' promise. And with all of that big talk, we, we're, we're, we're demanded to ask, how does he prove this? Mark knows, uh, he, he's very repetitious, so, such as the, the ministry of Jesus. There's a lot of uh, uh, repeated content, but here is Jesus proclaiming that, that he's the king, he's got power, he's going to build an eternal kingdom that will never fail, and here's some proof. There's four pieces of proof that Mark gives us in quick succession after his uh, proclamation about these, these parables. Number one was last week, a miracle with Jesus' power over nature that was calming the storm. This week, we're looking at his power over the demonic and spiritual realm as he casts out many thousands of demons. Next week, we're going to see a healing miracle, and and, uh, and within that same story, we're going to see him raise somebody from the dead. So that Mark is sort of, in a fourfold way, proving the authority of Jesus over nature, over the spiritual realm, over sickness, and over death itself. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 5 now and uh, see what the Lord would bless us with. Hear now the word of the living God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen, poor guys, fled 
and told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. May God bless the reading and preaching of his blessed, inerrant, powerful word this morning. Amen. Well, you have to, I want to start out this morning as we go into this real wacky, real, uh, real interesting, action-packed story. I want to just start with some sympathy towards the disciples to try and get into their frame of mind because if we've read it about five weeks separated from last sermon, it, uh, we're going to lose some of the context here. The disciples were on the boat with Jesus. They were over in Capernaum, and, and he said, let's go over to the other side. Uh, and so they got on a boat, and they went. There was some experienced fishermen with them. I'm not going to recap the whole story, but in the, in the night, there was an enormous storm that had experienced salesmen uh, fretting for their life, screaming like schoolgirls, and assuming that they're moments away from death. Jesus doesn't care. This is, this is the end. And they're afraid of it. Jesus then stands up, and as the Holy One of God... Only God in Scripture has power over the seas. And so Mark intentionally uses this imagery to drive home to them. The guy in the boat is far scarier than the storm outside. We are in a version, a, 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 a small version of the Holy of Holies. If you were ever in face-to-face -face with God in the Old Testament, you'd be struck dead. That was not allowed. And here they realize hurling insults at him for not caring about anyone, they are standing face to face with Yahweh. They are very much afraid. The text tells us that they were more afraid after seeing Jesus manifest his, his cosmic power on that lake. They were more afraid then than they were when they thought they were about to be drowned. And then they're probably either stiff at the back of the boat or hiding underneath the chairs or just asking Jesus to man the sails while they go and change their undergarments. They're, they're scared, gripping onto the side of the boat, and they finally pull into the shore. And as they, they climb out, they realize that we've pulled up to the graveyard. Why, Jesus? Why must it always be so? Why are we out of the pan and into the fire? There was a storm, then there was you. We are more fearful than we've ever been, and you've just pulled us up to the graveyard. Why? Why must it be so? And, and while they're, they're probably not saying anything because they remember who it is that's leading them, they're, they're still afraid, a, a long-haired, scratched, bloodied, naked man, the book of Luke and Matthew tell us, naked, runs, screaming at them, out of the graveyard. This is horror movie R18+. Plus. You, you, you can't imagine the fear and now confusion as they're screaming and wondering what they're seeing. And are they jumping behind Jesus? We don't, are they hurling back into the boat to beg? Can the storm just take us, please? This is a, a, an intense session, but this is just a day in the life of the ministry of the Messiah. 
he's this, and this is what he pulls the disciples through. So here they are, this man possessed with what we're told. Now, a legion is somewhere between three and 6,000 Roman soldiers. We're told that this man is named Legion because he has many demons. Now, maybe he has thousands. They at least go and possess a 2,000 pigs. So let's just guess that there's upward of 2,000 demons manifest uh, uh, sitting in this man. He comes screaming at them, yelling at them because he heard Jesus coming near. Maybe he felt him. So there's the disciples, and they don't really come up again in the, in the story. They're just over in the corner weeping. Then back to the main story. <laughs> we're going to see here that the activity of Satan and we're going to see the, the authority of Jesus and close out with some uh, practical and applicable remarks for us. How does this have any application for you and I today? I hope we are asking. <clears throat> well, we need to realize that the ministry and the, the mission of Satan is inversely related to the ministry of Jesus in the gospel. When we say maybe you're an engineer, maybe you've flunked physics in high school, but you at least remember inverse uh, proportions or inverse relationships, what that means is as one goes up, the other goes down. The, the amount of fuel in your tank and the kilometers on your odometer are in an inverse relationship. As the Ks go up, the fuel goes down. And, and so we need to see that the, the ministry of Satan and the ministry of Jesus in the gospel have an inverse but very uh, uh, central relationship to each other. Here is Jesus. He's coming. And, and Satan, he, he doesn't have a mission on earth that is some, somehow tangentially uh, uh, connected to Jesus and his mission. It is in entire opposition. It centers around, encamps around the ministry of Jesus. So, so much so that Jesus arrives, and what we're told is that this man comes and pursues Jesus. He saw him from far off and meets him on the shore. I, I think that what we're seeing is that the demons uh, see a, a, a storm immediately calmed, or whatever it is, they're aware that Jesus is far off. They watch him through this man. Um, uh, they watch him come to the shore, and, and this man comes running out of the mountains to meet them on the border of the water, the beach, and the cemetery. I think that there is, and this is freebie, this is off to the side, I think that there is at least some Practical application here for churches and how spiritual warfare or ministry goes on. It is evident, just as we saw when Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, he didn't ask for any show of hands, come down the front, you think you might have a demon or want to figure it out, let's, let's, let's dig around. If gospel ministry centers on Jesus, demons do not have to be sought out, ever. They make themselves are scarce and flee or very easily picked. Demons cannot easily hide in people, in walls, in rocks, in family curses, whatever nonsense we've heard. They, they, they are not easily resident where the gospel of Jesus is powerfully at work. So, so they come rushing towards Jesus because the mission of their master and this Jesus are diametrically opposed. They matter to one another. The ministry of Satan cannot go on while the ministry of Jesus goes powerfully. So, so here it is that he's far off and comes running towards Jesus to meet him on the shore. We do not see an, indifferent, an indifference in demons to Jesus. So, so let's just pluck off some of those false teachings that you might have heard before that 
You know, if you've ever thought a negative thought about somebody else in the church or about the, the holy one or, or, you know, who's preaching or about uh, or you've lusted or you've lied or anything, you've probably got some kind of demon of X, Y, Z. Lust, jealousy, anger, covetousness, something. You know, you've got a demon of something. We, we don't do that. That's not biblical. Let's not, and I'm going to have to calm down as we go through the book of Mark. It seems, I, I make a little section in, in every sermon preparation correcting false views from this text. Because it seems the Gospels are just rich for false teachers to take and start applying wrongly and fantasizing all sorts of ridiculous things. I'm going to have to calm down as we go, but I'm just making this one. You, you do not need to fear as we talk about demons that they're everywhere or that them being everywhere means that they are in you and, and over you powerfully. Even if you think they are, the solution is to draw near to God in a faithful local church where the word of God comes to you in clarity and where you draw near to God in communion and union. Any demons around will themselves manifest or flee. And so let's uh, avoid such strange demon hunting, spiritual warfare kind of ministry. <clears throat> but secondly, we see that Satan and his de demons, they recognize the authority, the position, and the purpose of Jesus. Look at verse 6. We see in verse 6 that uh, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. If you have an older version, it might say that he ran and worshipped him. Because the Greek word for worship is fall down before. You don't intentionally lower yourself with your face to the dirt in front of somebody outside of an act of worship. So here's this demon. I think they've translated it differently because he's not bringing his joyful song to the Lord. He, he's, he's in fear, but he is recognizing authority where it is. There is Jesus. He finds him out. He sprints to him, and he kneels. His face is to the dirt. He recognizes Jesus' authority, and then he begs for mercy. Look at what he says uh, down here. He says in verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? He knows the authority and the position of Christ. He says, Son of the Most High God. Just one little note here. This is a distinctly uh, Gentile statement. Uh, usually, uh, the, 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 the way that that phrase, Most High God, is used is in Scripture in comparison to all the false gods. Because this is a Gentile area. That's why there's pigs being farmed. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to go over to the gen mostly Gentile area. And there, people aren't going to call him things like the Christ, the Messiah. They're, they're going to call him Son of the Most High God. One of the other biblical phrases for this kind of theme is the one true and living God. Because there's lots of false dead gods. So anyway, he's using a Gentile expression here. Through the words and mouth of the man... The demons are speaking, saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus was saying, Come out of him. So they are begging mercy from Jesus because they recognize his authority. Let us be sure that whatever thoughts we have of the demonic realm, we never give them any respect or fear that would in any way belittle the authority of Jesus Christ. We, we don't walk around repeating phrases about Jesus around our house to make sure we sort of cleanse the place. We're not like that, but what we know is if you are joined to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit has so unified you with him that you cannot be touched, 
You cannot be attacked, overtaken, or, or even made to fear by the petty little demonic realm. But we don't get ourselves mixed up in it. We don't be careless about what warning scripture would give us. But the great hope of the, the great understanding of the Christian is, I'm in Christ and they know who he is. They may not know me, but they know who my Lord is and he is everywhere with me. So here they are. And then we see again that they, just reiterating that they know who Jesus is. They even beg him permission. They don't just fly to the pigs on their own. They ask permission for that. May you please allow us to go if it uh, pleases you over into the pigs, O Lord and Master. So they're begging Jesus. They know who is in control here. We have to see that while Satan's activity is as a focus against Jesus' mission and always under the authority of Christ, we like to say here that God keeps Satan on a leash. He does only what God wills him to do. He is also the master and the Lord of chaos, disorder, death, destruction, and rotting. This is what Satan does. We, we, we can look through Scripture and see pictures. What happens when, when the river of God flows richly through people? They bear fruit. They're a blessed person. We, I just read this morning in Psalm 1 in preparation for today, and it says how the man who is meditating on the word of God is, is like a tree drinking from the brook. Everything he does prospers. He's not withering. He's near the Lord, blessed by the Lord, spiritually nourished. Then we get a picture, a, a very good picture of what Satan does when he's given his full reign. Now, the other demon that Jesus cast out was somewhat orderly. He was somehow under the, the common grace of the Jewish religion, and he could sit in the synagogue and shut up, and, and, and maybe it was all secret stuff that he was doing. But this one, Satan has knocked the lid off through this man's sin and God's restraining grace being, being taken back from this man. Satan has been given full reign over him as much as Jesus allows. And so he's destroying himself, cutting himself. His, his social relationships are ruined. His clothes are gone, he is in, which is a picture in Scripture of shame. He has no shame, but he is in a state of shame. He is overtaken. He cannot control himself. And where does he happen to be living? Among the dead. In the cemeteries, by night and day, crying out. What a, what a fearful picture that would have been being down in one of the cities in the Decapolis and hearing it late at night, the, the loud cries and the, the howls of a demon-possessed man, that they would shackle him up with chains and he would bend the chain links apart. They would put shackles around him and he would crack them into pieces. This was this man. Satan destroys and wherever he sets up false religions, ideologies, or sets up power strongholds in people's life through sin, he always aims to destroy and rot. We even see here that, that he was, uh, this man who was possessed by these many thousands of demons, he was possessed by demons that sought to kill him. The moment that they are released from him and put into any other living being, they kill 2,000 pigs in a moment in quite a dramatic fashion. I think that what we need to see here is that, is that the demons are seeking to do everything they can to kill this man, destroy him, strike fear into other people. We even see in other pagan religions, human sacrifice 
Child sacrifice is just rife. Human blood and death is a common theme in demonic spirituality. It's everywhere because the devil loves to kill image bearers. And, and so wherever we see demon-possessed people that are not yet killed and destroyed, we need to assume, friends, that God is restraining those demons from taking this person, man, woman, to their end that they desire. God is always the one preserving a demon-possessed person from death. And let me say, if they have been possessed in this way, and in fact, this is always the case, if they're, because the, the possession of demons always follows the opening of the heart and soul to the demonic realm through sin or, 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 or false spirituality, new ageism in our day, because souls open themselves up and then are afflicted by demons, God is either preserving that person so that they would elongate their suffering as a judgment to them, or, as we see today, he is preserving them until such a time as they meet Jesus and are released, the chains broken in a spiritual sense and healed and brought into the kingdom of light, now untouchable by Satan and his hordes. God is always preserving. Satan is always seeking to kill where a demon-possessed person is not yet dead, God is preserving them for one of those two purposes, for greater judgment or great salvation. Such is the disgusting and horrible work of Satan. But let's now look at some verses that will show us in this whole picture the authority of Jesus. We're going to compare what Jesus does with all of the other things that have already been tried on this man. Let's look down at verse 6. Jesus' authority, and we've said this, let's repeat it, is such a strong, vivid, known authority in the spiritual realm that demons know to bow to him. We saw in 6 and 7 that he runs and thousands, an entire legion of Satan's army comes down and bends in unison to Jesus. That's bad news. If you're a military leader and your hordes take their weapons, their powers, and go and submit it to the power of another king, you know they respect him a little bit more than you. So this has happened. They go and subject themselves to Jesus. Do with us what you please, but please do not torment us. And then we see in, uh, here that Jesus, the power of Jesus is stronger over demons than the demon's power is over this man. This man has thousands of demons within him, and they do whatever they want with him. No one can stop them from doing to him what they want. But Jesus' authority over demons is more strong than those demons' power over the man. So that when he says to do something, they obey. They obey with greater clarity and immediacy than this man would be obeying them. Still within this man was the resistance, the, the pulling back, the despising of what's happening. But in demons, they obey immediately when Jesus speaks. Thousands of demons with one voice are not as authoritative as one man Jesus with the booming voice of God. He tells them what to do. Then we see, though, that, again, we said earlier, down in verse 12, they again ask permission to be sent into the pigs, and it's so clearly says in verse 13, almost in a funny way, so he gave them permission. He ticked the box, they submitted their application, he approved, gave it back to them, and those little underlings did what they were told. <clears throat> we see also that Jesus does 
without words, without even an outward action, Jesus does what chains and shackles could not do. Down in verse 6 again. This man, who had, or we'll read from verse 4. He'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched those chains apart. Right? He, he's bending multiple links of hardened iron here. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Cut down to verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down, very much subdued. What chains could not do, what shackles could not do, Jesus very easily, even just passively by his presence, does. This man uncontrollable brought like a well-trained dog before him. Thousands of demons within him trembling. He does what, what simple restraints cannot do. We also see that Jesus does what false religions cannot do. There is plenty of evidence in, uh, in Scripture and outside of Scripture that shows to us that these religions around Jerusalem are, and around the Israelites are filled with, with superstition and, and demonic possessions and there's people seeking to cast them out. And sometimes there's a, there's a bit of victory, there's, there's spiritual warfare that goes on, but, but what they cannot truly or really do is cast out the power and presence of the demonic realm. Because, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, all false religions are led by demons. All false gods are actually demons in disguise. And so, so what those false religions can do is kick out all the other demons. Because I think there's infighting between demonic uh, beings. And, and maybe, sure, they, they want to keep their, their territory and their worship. And they'll, they'll flick other demons out of their space, sure. But what they can never do is cast out the satanic rule and reign. They are the satanic rule and reign. And so... These men, they've, they've not been able to subdue him or heal him, so they've kicked him out of society. Those false religions could not do for this man what he so desperately needed. He also does, Jesus does, what society cannot do. I don't know if you've got a, a big trust in, in politics and you sort of have a, 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 a twisted view of humankind that says as soon as somebody's elected to a public office, they lose uh, uh, original sin and total depravity and automatically become entirely trustworthy as long as they're on your side of the ballot and you like them. And they can be trusted with all the power, all the authority, all of the honor, all of the glory. Oh, geez, that sounds like worship. Uh, that, that you want to give to them. And they can be trusted. They'll do what they want. And they'll never overstep it. They'll never twist your arm. They'll never do something ungodly. You need to just believe trust, bend the knee to the government, all right? Uh, I don't know if you've got that view, or maybe you've got this other anti-biblical view that no one in government should ever be respected, honored, or submitted to, both unbiblical. Let's just land in the middle and say society is just a bunch of sinners figuring out that working together is easier in this cursed world. And leadership or government and politics is just some of those people like being at the top of that pyramid scheme. And, and that management and government is actually a good and helpful thing, but it's always being held by people who are still under the rule and realm and reign of sin and Satan. Maybe the demonic realm, but, but let's not go too far. And so we might have a, have a view that what we need, and, and maybe this just hits right at home for some of us, that, that our friends are, 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 are tied up, shackled in, this, in the, the, the demonic realm. Or, or maybe just in other sinful ideologies or sinful lifestyles or depression or, or all sorts of things. And we say, geez, what, what this world needs is just 
a few more government-funded programs and a better government in, the, in power and, and some more uh, uh, free healthcare services here or, or another government-run education service over here. This is the problem. We need a top-down fix. And it's always as powerless if, if we've got a kingdom of God mindset. Now, praise God for government and all of his common grace within it. But if we look to those things as having the power to individually save or ultimately help sinners, individual people, whether they're under the direct rule of 2,000 demons or they're just under the realm, the realm and reign of sin, government, politics, society has no way of helping. They're as dirty and as weak as we all are. And so we see this in his situation. What was society's ultimate and finishing move for this kind of man? They send him out to live among the gravestones. That's their solution. That's as much as they can do. Some social distancing. Ha, oh, I'm so funny. They, they, they put him out up into, the, up into the, the, the cemetery and say, stay up there. This, that's as powerful as human beings are. And Jesus comes and brings him near and drags him down and does what no other really well-trained or educated group of Decapolis-leading Gentile Romans can think of. Cast the demons out in the power of Jesus. They don't have the power. They don't even have the wisdom to think that. And yet here is Jesus doing just that. And so we see, I just want to repeat on verse 15, uh, the glorious change that had happened. This man screaming, scratching, crying out for mercy, inhabited by demons, naked, making no sense, talking, screaming, gibberish. When people came to see him, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, in his right mind, and they were afraid. They saw an entirely different man sitting before them, and such is the power of Jesus. He changes people in ways that no other force or power or system in this created realm can ever do. We've just heard about it in the LBC. He makes people new. Anyone can make the system new, the program new, the funding new, the, the, the rules new. Anyone can do that. Only Jesus can make the sinner a new person, break those shackles. He was breaking the metal shackles. Jesus broke the demonic and satanic spiritual shackles to release that man into his own kingdom. But we're going to look here at what Jesus does with all of this authority. The main point of this sort of miracle that Mark wants us to see is not sweet. Let's go try this is not even really telling us the story that Jesus is just expanding his spiritual ministry in order to cast out demons far and wide. The, the point is that Jesus has power and authority as son of the Most High. There's no locale with the biblical true living God. You know that the old pagan gods, they had locales. And the further away the battle, the physical battle or the spiritual battle was from their temple, the weaker the God was. And Jesus has shown, I'm across the lake, I'm in his own territory. Bring it on, 2,000 people versus one, they will be gone. Jesus has no locale. He is son of the most high God, always and everywhere present, touching his divine nature, incarnate in the man Jesus, touching his human nature. And, and look at this, it, it, down in verse, <clears throat> down in verse uh, 18. In fact, we'll, we'll go to verse 17. They, they had seen and heard the story of everything that had happened. 
these people and all of their wisdom, what did they decide to do? This is the third time in the scripture that the word beg is used. One was when the demon was begging Jesus not to let them, not to torment them. This is the second time that these people beg with the same urgency, leave us alone, Jesus, out of our town, out of our city, out of our domain. You are not welcome with this kind of power, authority, and display. We are not willing to have it here. Verse, verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, pause there. What's Jesus doing? I've, I've just spent a little bit of time, even got a little bit loud, explaining that Jesus has all authority to do whatever he wants. And what, the city rulers come up and put in a submission? Leave? Does he bend the knee to them and, and pack up and say, I, I cannot go into closed cities and closed countries. The borders are closed. I've got to leave. No. Back in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says that Jesus decided, let us get up and depart for across the lake. He was always doing, in fact, the book of John says that Jesus never did anything, never said anything, if he didn't see and hear his Father in heaven leading him in that direction by the Holy Spirit. So why did they get up and go across? Because God had so commanded Christ in his ministry to go and release this man from demonic captivity. And Jesus, seeing that that mission was done, he was perfectly willing to leave them alone, respond to their lack of faith, and leave them. So Jesus decides to leave as they request. But then, he's, then he's, he's begged again, and we see this in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. Please, Jesus. I have a reputation here. I'd much rather start life in a new city. I'm a new man. I've got clothes on. I look good. I would much rather not walk back to all of the people I tormented, that I, that I made afraid to walk out of their homes at night. I, I'm, I'm like a, a werewolf in this city. Can I please come with you? I want to learn from you. And, and, and we know that there's at least enough time from the healing and the demonic exorcism, there's enough time between that and when Jesus is leaving for some people to go into the city tell a bunch of people, them to come back, talk among themselves, and then get the city leaders to ask Jesus to leave. I think that in that time, Jesus is speaking to this, demon, this formerly demon-possessed man, speaking to him about what power he just used, speaking to him about the kingdom of God, and, and maybe even introducing him to the very afraid disciples. And so he asks, please, more of this. Take me with you. I implore you, Jesus. What looks like hardness of heart Jesus mercifully and graciously says no. He says, in the first commission here, we haven't seen yet the commissioning of the disciples to go out and preach and do, uh, do miracles. But he's going to commission a Gentile, formerly demon-possessed, newly clothed, owning nothing man. He says to him, go home to your friends however little there are at the moment, <coughs> your former friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus utilizes this authority. He realizes this was the man we came for. The towns don't want us. That's okay. The Father sent me for this one man. And he was happy to leave. Let me, let me say this, that this happened in the life of Jesus continually. 
And this happened in the history of redemption, where the incarnation of Jesus ceases to be present on earth or in a realm or in a place. God sends preachers. In God's mind, the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit is actually more important than the physical presence of Jesus in a realm. And so Jesus plays, plays the game. He goes, fine, I won't be here. You can have not the next best thing. The, in fact, maybe even a better thing. A man saved, made new by the power of God, proclaiming to you salvation and forgiveness of sins and, and the coming of the kingdom of the Jewish God, Yahweh, through his son, Jesus Christ, son of the Most High. Where the incarnation withdrew from that area, God sent a preacher in the place of Jesus. He was not ordained. He'd not gone to seminary. He'd never gone to Shabbat, a little uh, Jewish synagogue, Sabbath. No, he'd done none of those things. I think you and I need to realize whenever we feel under-equipped, and, and none of us are less equipped than the demon guy, whenever we feel unequipped, under-equipped, not, not equipped enough to be preachers at, church, uh, at, at work or in our family or among our friends, Jesus gives to us the same commission in Matthew, 8, Matthew 28, he says, go and preach, as he said to this man. None of us can look at this guy and claim that we're less equipped than him. He didn't even have a church. He didn't even have friends who believed what he was saying. He was just commissioned by Jesus, and that was enough. We don't know what happened after this, if people sort of turned to interest in this and then started following Jesus' ministry, or whether they, they were there on the day of Pentecost when men, many uh, uh, people from other nations were there. We just don't know. But what we know is that the word that was spoken by that man never fell flat, and it always bore the fruit that God wished it to. And we'll find out in eternity what this man, formerly named Legion, accomplished for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so let's think about our applications here. We've said that we must take this verse, 19, for ourselves. Go, to your, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The greatest sinners make the greatest testimonies. The deepest, darkest lives do not work against the gospel witness, but in fact confirm the power and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let us never lose heart that our life or reputation has gone so south before Jesus, but rather use that as a springboard to preach his mercy. All that Christ has done for you. Then we, we need to ask just the practical question. We touched on it before. What about demonic exorcism? This is a pretty popular verse to go to and one's like it and really, you know, teach on, do, do the workshop on the Saturdays, come and learn how to uh, exercise your friends or your husband, whatever, in five easy steps, how to get a demon out, whatever. What we need to know is, this is a verse, I've, I've heard this enough. I'm going to do it. I said I would stop doing it, but I'm going to do it. I, I hear frequently people say, when you're addressing it, trying to figure out if there's a demon in there, always ask their name. You need to hear it. You need to get them to say it like what happened here, right? What is your name? I am Legion. The text actually says that Jesus is speaking to the man. What's your name? Because he's a guy, he's friends. So yeah, if you're going to exercise a demon out of somebody, at least know their name. Be at least that good of friends. Don't start with the demon thing and then find out who they are later. Uh, but then it's the demons that answer. So no, this is not a, 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 a how-to prescriptive text telling us what to go and do. It's a descriptive text a descriptive text, just describing what happened. Let's not take it as a, uh, a how-to if we're not going to take verse 19 as a how-to first. Go home and tell your friends. 
do we deal with the demonic in modern-day Christianity? Let me say rarely, and yet very often. Rarely are we doing any kind of spirit, uh, uh, two-person, verbal, spiritual confrontation like that. Very rare. It happens, but it's very rare. And yet it's extremely often. Because all around us, through demonic mindsets, people being maybe attacked through new ageisms or spiritualities or mediums or palm reading, whatever, we, we know that the work of the demons are rife around us. And so maybe you've, you've had more run-ins while you're evangelizing than you've realized when those people got so annoyed at you or completely misunderstood everything you were saying or, or just kept on uh, 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 misrepresenting you and whatever it was. Maybe you were having some kind of run-in. But let me tell you, the vast majority of work that is done, Christian against demon, is done through, as we started out saying, faithful gospel proclamation. That's what, whether you realize some shaking, foaming mouth on the ground or not, and usually not, if there's some kind of demonic stronghold or power or activity in that person's life, when you preach that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, has died for sinners, risen from the dead, and that anybody that believes that can be set free from the demonic realm, free from mental, intellectual bondage to stupidity, and come to realize, freed from the foolishness of the world systems, coming to be freed from your sins in the demonic realm, Jesus is your king. You speak that, they'll flee, and you don't need to worry about too much extra or extraordinary things. <clears throat> that could be a whole nother sermon, so we'll just keep going. And, and to close up, I want to ask you personally, have you been delivered from the kingdom and power of Satan? And don't hear me saying, are you currently possessed by an innumerable amount of demons? Because you don't have to be possessed by a demon to be possessed by Satan. He may not be in you and working you like a puppet, but he is over you, and he holds your name as a matter of ownership. He possesses you in that sense. We learn in Ephesians that if, if you are outside of Christ, living a sinful life, and maybe, maybe you're a teenager with Christian parents, maybe you're a visitor this morning, or maybe you're somebody who's been at church all your life but never come to Christ in faith, truly, you are, according to Ephesians 2, you're under the realm and reign of, G, of, of Satan, who is your prince. Uh, we learn in Ephesians 4 that you're spiritually blind, and we learn in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 that, that Satan comes and puts a second layer of blinding over you. We see that in John 8, Jesus says to anybody that's lying or hating him or hating anybody else to the point of murder, you're a son and daughter of Satan. Your dad is just like you. You look just like him. I can see his characteristics coming out in you. The murder, the hate, the lies. It is satanic. And so you don't have to be like this man Legion. You just have to be a non-Christian to be entirely opened up to and under the realm and rule of Satan. And that is still not the worst news of the story. Because while that's true and you're under Satan, you're even more under the wrath and condemnation of God. And, and Satan will be alongside sinners in hell being punished for rebellion. So, so the ultimate point here is not even to be freed from Satan. Let's just forget about him. Let's look to God, the holy God, who when people in the last two stories met with just a touch of his power, started shaking and begging that they would not be anywhere near him. Such is the holiness of our God. 
And so your, your sin that is on your record, your guilt that is on your soul before God deserves to be cast out, deserves to be tormented and punished for justice. But Jesus, Jesus has come. We saw in this story that 2,000 Gentile pigs died in order to save this man legion. Jesus was willing to sacrifice those petty swine in order to save a human soul. Yet the real good news is that Jesus gave himself to be cast out, destroyed, and tormented under the wrath of God in our place. It wasn't bulls, goats, or even pigs that died for us. The real great exchange was Jesus, who took upon himself our sin, went before the Lord, received punishment from him, so that you and I, sinners though we are by nature, our record can be clean before the Father, and our souls can be made new, regenerated, made to be kingdom members of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you would find yourself there today. I'm myself or Vic afterwards, if, if, you, if you need to make this decision, if you need to come and get, put your faith in Christ, you can do it where you're sitting now, while I pray, during the final song, and if you need to talk to somebody, come down to the front and have a good chat while everybody else goes out. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you so much for your word, which is a light in a dark world and tells us about you in so many different ways and today in such a, a colorful story that would, would tell us of Jesus' power over the demonic realm and that the, the one who calls us brother and sister and child and, and servant and friend is the authoritative Lord of all. We thank you, God, that in salvation you have given to us Jesus, that you have given him to be the one who would die in our place, but you have also given him to be our king ruling over us. Pray, Lord, that all those who have come to know Jesus by faith, would recognize the joy and the privilege of being in a kingdom ruled by a loving and merciful and gracious Savior. Lord, I, I pray that you would use your spirit to send us out to our homes, to our family, our friends, our villages, our towns, our workplaces, to tell them how merciful you are, how great you have saved us, how, how, how amazing your, your mercy is towards us. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us with saved souls, as we go out, or as visitors are here today, would you please use your word to bring people to faith, save their souls? And if anywhere there is a, a, an involvement of demonic power or, 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 or some kind of giving over to, to the spiritual realm in the worst ways possible, God, we pray you would break that off, you would heal them, you would bring them to faith in Jesus, the only true salvation from that or the wrath of God. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you. And everybody said, Amen.